Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Good morning. My name is Tim, and I get to serve on uh, pastoral staff here and teach regularly and count it a privilege to do so. We're in this uh, series of teachings on, called Outside and talking about how we can engage with God outside, how God engages with us outside. And today, I get to talk about mountains. And... If you know me a little bit, you know I love mountains. I love being in the mountains in the wintertime. I love hiking in the summertime. I propose to my wife overlooking mountains. I love mountains. And so I just, the idea of getting to convince people why God also loved mountains, I was just like jumping at this opportunity. So um, that's what we're going to look at today. So uh, the first text we're going to look at is Ezekiel 28, you know, traditional where you start when you talk about mountains text. Um, so Ezekiel 20, and we're going to pop around a bunch of different places. If you want to follow along in your scriptures, feel free to do so. I'll also read a number to you. Uh, but Ezekiel 28, in Ezekiel 28, the prophet Ezekiel is describing what things were like in the very beginning. And I just want to read what he sees there. So Ezekiel 28, 13 says, you were in Eden the garden of God. So we're talking about Eden. We're talking about the very beginning of things. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And then skipping down to verse 14, you were on the holy mount of God. The holy mountain. So apparently for the prophet Ezekiel, when describing Eden, describing the beginning of the beginning, the garden when all things were right in the very beginning, there was a garden there and there was a what there? A mountain. The very beginning of things, when everything was right, there's a mountain there. (laughs) Skip now to the left in your Bible to another prophet, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2. Ezekiel talks about, he's describing the very beginning of things. Isaiah refers to the very end of things. And in Isaiah 2, we read this, verse 2. In the last days, the mountain... Of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. And so, in the very end of things, when all things are put back together the way they're supposed to be, what do we see right there in the center of Isaiah's vision? A mountain. What is it about God and mountains? What about God and meeting people at mountains? Moses, you know the, the famous Moses meets God at the burning bush? God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush? You know that you've heard this. Where does that take place? At a mountain. The, Moses leads God through, God through Moses leads his people out of slavery in Egypt. They go into the wilderness and then God is forming this people. He gives them his Torah, his law. He communicates through Moses to his people. And what famous mountain does this take place at? Sinai, Mount Sinai. Or later on, the prophet Elijah. There's this account where Elijah, he, um, he confronts these prophets and he retreats to the wilderness and then God speaks to Elijah. In the, and there's this, it literally translated, there's this evocative phrase. God speaks to Elijah in the sound of thinnest silence. And where does that take place for Elijah? On a mountain. 
What is it about God and mountains? Why does God love mountains? Why does God meet with people at mountains? What is it about God and communicating with people, encountering them at mountains? And if God wanted to encounter and speak to people at mountains in Scripture, in these events in the past, might God still meet people and speak to people and encounter people in mountains today? Might there be something that God can can say to us when we're in the mountains? uh, I've been just, as we've been in this outside series, I've been kind of trying to do some research and just what happens to people when they're out, like physically, what kind of research has been done? What happens to us when we're outside? And when a couple weeks ago, I talked about walking, if you're here two weeks ago. And um, in there, I, did, I just found out about what happens when people walk outside, which of course, if you're walking up a mountain, you're walking outside. And, uh, when, and there's so much stuff, when, like that, there's been a lot of research done on what takes place in humans when they're walking in nature, in creation. Uh, some of the stuff that, uh, you, and you can find these things, um, 20% improvement in short-term memory, lowered heart rate, lowered cortisol levels, this is stress hormone, lowered levels of inflammation in the body, lower blood pressure, raised self-esteem, it lowers depression rates, uh, what are some of the other things, lowered mental fatigue, uh, higher concentration levels, higher levels of creativity, when this is all just walking outside. Which, of course, when you're walking up mountain, these things are taking place. And what is it about walking outside? And then um, there's all this, you know, all these different studies have been done. And then a a few years ago, there was a couple researchers who said, okay, we know there's all this stuff that happens in people when they walk outside. But but specifically, do different things happen in people when you're walking in different kinds of outdoor environments? Because so far, the researchers just said outdoor environments generally, are there different kinds of outdoor environments that have different effects on people? And so these researchers, what they found out is a specific kind of environment, what they called high prospect, low refuge environments, had the greatest benefits for people. And high prospect means, high prospect means you can physically see a long way. High prospect, you, there's no sense of you being lost, you know, you're oriented, you know where you are, you know what's around you. High prospect, low refuge means there's, there's no places where things can hide and jump out at you. So uh, like a, a, gra- a sunny, grassy hilltop where you can see a long way. This, this had the highest, the highest benefit. And like a dark, foggy, dense forest. Like the lowest effects for people. And, and they found this like high, high prospect, low refuge. They found that um, it lowered levels of anger and sadness, raised the sense of well-being, raised the sense of relaxation, raised the ability to concentrate. And one person who was summarize, summarizing all this research, they, had, they, they said, and I quote, they said, so mountains make ideal learning environments. Matthew 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. 
And so begins the Sermon on the Mount, the most well-known and influential block of teaching maybe uh, that Jesus gave and maybe in human history. This incredible message about what does it mean to live the kingdom way. And Jesus does it where? Where does he do it? On a mountain. That's so interesting to me. Now, clearly, part of it, part of it is this kind of this symbolic thing Jesus is tapping into. Jesus knows that the, the whole tradition of that he's as a first century Jew, he knew in the Hebrew scriptures what we talked about already, that there's this tradition of God encountering people on mountains. And so I think there's this symbolic sense that Jesus symbolic that, that especially just as Moses gave the Torah, the law, the way of walking with God on a mountain. So too, now Jesus is wanting to present himself. He is the new Moses, giving the new Torah on the new Sinai, the new way of God's kingdom. So I think there's this this definitely like symbolic action that Jesus is doing. But is it only symbolic? Is, that, is, it just, is Jesus only doing it for symbolic effect? Or is there more going on? Might Jesus, as a master teacher, might he have this intuition that, that, that uh, these people he's teaching, they are going to have uh, a greater understanding of what he's teaching in this mountain environment, an ideal learning environment. What is it about Jesus and Mountains. And, and it's not just, I mean, Jesus, when you go through the Gospels, he is going up mountains all the time. This is not an isolated incident. Have you ever gone through the Gospels and just like counted the number of times he goes up mountains? Probably not. But <laughs> he goes up like eight or nine different mountains. And that's not even counting like the Mount of Olives and Mount Zion in Jerusalem. I mean, just generic mountains, just kind of just. Saying he went up a mountain just because it's a mountain. So uh, let me give you a few examples. John, let's see, John 6. Where's John 6 here? John 6, John 6, 3. Then Jesus went up a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. He goes on to feed the 5,000 on this mountainside. After he feeds the 5,000, they decide that he's this like messianic figure. They want to make him king by force. And so what happens in verse uh, 15, Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, which is kind of funny, like, you will be king whether you like it or not, um, he withdrew again to a mountain. He retreats to a mountain. He teaches on a mountain. He retreats to a mountain. Uh, Mark 6, 46, after a block of teaching, it says, after leaving them, Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray he prays all night and this is the right he prays all night in this mountain and then he sees the disciples in the boat out in the sea of galilee and then he walks on water out to them he's praying all night in a mountain right before this incredible revelation of his power on a mountain later on he takes peter james and john up a mountain and it's this event we call the transfiguration where where he like physically glows and the voice of the father speaks this is my son listen to him on a mountain after the uh, crucifixion and resurrection it says his disciples go to galilee and meet jesus on a mountain and he gives them what we know as the great commission mountains 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 why is jesus going up so many mountains why do the authors of the gospels record it for us 
Why is it so important? Is he doing it for his sake? Is he doing it for the sake of his followers? What is it about mountains? As I've been thinking about this, and honestly, some of this is just me inviting you to ask the question with me. Because I don't know that I have this all figured out, but I'd like you to be really curious about this too, because this is like, what is it? Why are these mountains? Why do we, these, you know, these questions that don't have to get asked. I want you to ask it with me. But one of the things that I've, been, I've found myself thinking about as I've thought about mountains, that yet there, there's all sorts of things, you know, going up a mountain, you experience all the things that you do anytime you're outdoors and connected with creation. And, we, you know, like listening to creation, like Christian talked about last week, or walking with others, or walking with God, like we talked about the week before. But mountains add a few elements that other times we're out in creation they don't have. Mountains, in my mind, they add specifically two things pop into my mind. One is vision. Last weekend, I took uh, a couple of my daughters down to camp at uh, Deception Pass. And right there at the bridge, there's this Goose Rock, which is the highest point on Whidbey Island. So we just went this little hike up on Goose Rock, and we stood up there. And you can see way out down the strait, out towards the ocean, you see the Olympics. We could see Mount Rainier. I mean, wait, they're like, that's past Seattle. That's crazy. And, uh, but you, when you get up high, you have a sense of vision, physical vision that I think somehow taps into this sense of spiritual destination. Vision, and the second thing that I find myself thinking about when you get up at a, you know, a mountain or a high point, the other thing that comes to my mind is size. When you're up high, you get a sense of the immensity of the world and our smallness in it. And again, I think this physical reality of the immensity of the world and our smallness, I think it taps into, it brings home the sense of the immensity of God and the smallness of the things we carry around in our heads at times. The sense of size. Size and vision. And I, and I think, you know, we, as we've gone through this series, we've talked about this idea that we aren't we aren't just minds in machines. We are physical, spiritual unities. Our souls and our bodies are intertwined. We're unities. And, and what happens to us physically, the physical places we're in, the physical things that happen to us, th- those impact us, affect us spiritually. You can't just pull those apart. And I think physically something can happen. God can do things when you're up at these high points, when you're seeing this kind of vision, when you're seeing this kind of size, he can say things to us that he might not be able to say in other places. When I, uh, uh, early on after graduating college, I had a number of years where I did uh, youth ministry. Worked with high school students and middle school students and one of the things we would do is uh, we'd do wilderness trips, like week-long wilderness trips. We'd take a group of high school students out, and I lived in Colorado at the time, so we'd take a group of high school students just out into the backcountry for a week. Some of them had done stuff like this before. Some of them, they had never done anything like this before. And we'd take them out for a week, and always in the middle of our time, we'd always have a summit day. 
uh, where you, we're, we've been out in the backcountry for a while, and now this one day we're going to go up a peak. Not rock climbing, but like a, like a hard, long hike up a tall peak. And, uh, we, and one of the things we do, we always have them carry a rock up this peak. And we talk about, is there something that you're carrying with you? Is there something, something weighing you down? Is there something that you want to leave out here, let go of, be free of? And we want you to physically carry this rock up this mountain. And I can remember one time, um, there was a guy, Ben. He was probably a junior in high school. Dark hair. He's a big, um, kind of burly guy. He's a football player. Uh, ben, he kind of, he's the guy, he wore sleeveless t-shirts the whole week. Uh, <laughs> And uh, he didn't know what he thought about God. His dad wasn't real involved in his life, but he kind of been around our, our, our youth ministry, and I'd gotten to know Ben a little bit. And I remember we're going up this peak day, and he'd never done anything like this before. And I remember it was getting Ben outside of his comfort zone. And both physically, he was just wearing out, and then just even like the height of it and the, the, the steepness of it, Ben was just uncomfortable, and I don't know if I can do it. And I remember just walking beside Ben for an hour and a half. I don't remember how long. And just over and over, Ben saying, just I was like in his ear just saying, Ben, you are stronger than you realize. Ben, you're going to make it up here. We're going to go up here together. Ben, you can do this. Ben, you're stronger than you know. We're going to get to the top of this. And Ben walking up and walking beside. And I remember Ben getting to the top of that peak and putting his rock down and getting tears in his eyes. And just and 360 degrees like Colorado Rockies stretching out in every direction. Snow-capped peaks. And he had never seen anything like this in person. And him just saying, he's, I remember he stood there. And he's like, God is so real. How could I not see it? Like, God is so real. How do people not see it? And Ben, when Ben went down that mountain, there was a difference in this young man. There was a lightness. There was a giddiness in this young man. And he left some things at that mountaintop. And God did some things in Ben's heart that day. And I wonder to myself, what if he would have never gone on that trip? What if Ben and I had just tried to have that conversation at McDonald's? And, I, and look, it's not, I'm not saying that Mount, it's not magical. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying that like our bodies and our, and our, our physical and spiritual lives, they're connected and they affect one another. And I think God, when we physically get up, we physically see this vision, this perspective, this distance, the immensity of the world, the smallness of ourselves. I think God can say things into our hearts that he might not be able to say in other places. I mean, when you read through the Hebrew scriptures, you see there's this deep understanding of our physicality and how that affects us spiritually. So much of the, the, the Jewish and Hebrew spirituality is physical stuff. God said to, the, he said to the Jewish people, he said, I want you to walk up to Jerusalem three times a year. He instituted a three-time-a-year mountain climb. And then right in the middle of the book of Psalms, there are, from Psalms 120 to 134, there are a book of poem prayers. And do you know what they're called? The Psalm of Ascents. The poem prayers you sing while doing your climb to Jerusalem. There are mountain climbing song prayers right in the middle of this book. 
And I know there's more to it. Jerusalem is the, the center where the place of worship. I know this, but I, I, there's more to it. But I wonder if there's, is there less to it? Might there be some spiritual discipline of mountain climbing? Spiritual discipline of just physically being outside and going to a high point of God speaking about his vision and his size and orienting us spiritually that he can do when we're in these kind of outdoor, these high point environments. The last, uh, the last scriptural text I just want to talk a moment about is uh, Luke 6.12. This is a, a time when Jesus goes out on a mountain, and I didn't, it's one that I didn't mention earlier. But in Luke 6, verse 12, we read this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And another night on a mountain praying to God. It's just like, why didn't he go in a cave or a field or a river or like in a mouse, in a house with a mouse or blocked with a fox? <laughs> like he goes, oh, like he goes on a mountainside to pray. He spent the night praying to God. And then verse 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. And it's like, as I've talked, you know, as I've mentioned these accounts of Jesus on a mountain, it seems like at, often at these pivotal moments in his life and work, he goes up to a mountain. And this moment of, of choosing, like, at this point, he had a lot of disciples. He had a lot of followers. But at this point, he's choosing the 12 of them that he wants to entrust his kingdom movement to. He knows that he has limited time on earth. He said, I'm choosing the 12 of you. You will be leaders in my movement. I'm passing it on to you. You will be leading this after I'm gone. It's this pivotal moment of choosing these 12. And he goes up on a mountain to pray before doing it. And I just want, I think about Jesus. And I think about this choice of who, what 12 will he trust this thing to? This, he's got this mission to the world. What 12 people do, does he want to put the leadership of this? What 12 does he want to entrust it to? And yes, Jesus is God, but I don't think it's just as simple as he's God. He knew the right answer. I think Jesus in his humanness had to wrestle this out in prayer just like you or I would. And I wonder how much did it help Jesus to be physically up high? And to be thinking about the millennia of, of this kingdom movement and, and how it would go around the world. How much did it be, help Jesus to be physically up high and to see this vision of distance and to say, I want something that goes this far. How much did it help Jesus to be physically up high and to see the immensity of creation and be reminded of the immensity of his father and say, Father, I can trust this decision into your immense hands. How much did it help him? And if that's and, and I also think about his these twelve disciples and and for how much how much was it for their sake like these twelve disciples they were they're fishermen and tax collectors they were people whose lives were pretty pretty 
in like around the Sea of Galilee. And, and, and they, they had been this like for generations in the same place and doing the same thing. And he was going to be calling them out. They would end up traveling the world. Most of them would end up dying for the sake of Jesus. And I wonder, did Jesus want them to be on a mountain, to have the sense of perspective, of, the, of, the, of distance, of going the long way, the sense of the immensity of their God? Did he want them to be in this kind of location the moment that he said to them, I choose you? That somehow this physical, that it, it, would, it would put something onto their souls that connected their call to be his leaders in the kingdom movement with the, this sense of vision and distance. And even when you're down in the valley, we're going somewhere. And even when it feels like the, the, the obstacles in front of you are, are enormous, there is a God who is immense. Did he want that to be seared into their souls right along with their call to be leaders in his movement? Is there something that God's able to do in our hearts when we're out in his world, when we're out at that high point that he can't do or it's easier for him to do than other times and places? I think about Jesus and his disciples. And then I think about, I think about us. I think about us in this room. And there, there's those of us in this room, and some of us, we need vision. I mean, some of you in this room, you need, vi- like, vi- in a, like in a sense of like, you're thirsty. You're, you're, I've heard you ask, like, God, what is your vision? What's your vision for my marriage? What's your vision for me vocationally? What's your vision for me in this friendship? And I want to see God give you that vision. And I wonder if God, if there's not something that God would want to do and say, hey, will you set some time aside? Will you walk up to a high point and be with me and let me speak to you about my vision for your life? I think some of us, some of us, like we have things that, that take up, they take up a lot of space in our heads. They're, they're, they're relational conflicts or financial situations or worries about, worries about our kids, or worries about friends, and they, they are big in our head. They take up a lot of, our, of our, uh, the screen of our minds. And I wonder if God wouldn't say to some of us, hey, I want you to pick up a rock, and I want you to think about this thing that you've been carrying around. I want you to walk to the top of a hill, and I want you to leave it there, and I want to speak to you about my immensity. And not that he can't do that in other times and places, but I wonder if God might want to say something to you about his size in comparison to those things you've been carrying around in your mind. That you might be able to leave that up there and walk down that hill with a different word from him taking up space in your head. There's this this sense that, and once again, I just, like it's not, I'm not saying that it's magic or you just automatic things happen, but there's just somehow God's able to use these things. He's used them in his people's lives throughout the course of his interactions with them in scripture. And I wonder if he might not want to meet us in this way as well, to speak to us about his vision, to speak to us 
about his immensity, to reorient our hearts. I'd encourage, I'd encourage you to think about doing that this week, to think about going up to a high point. And I know, look, I know, and, and you, maybe you hear mountains and you think, oh, like, I'm not going to climb a mountain, Tim. I can't do that. And look, I get we're not all going to go up Mount Baker, and that is totally, and some of us just physically wouldn't be able, and that's fine, but there are high points. You can go, uh, we can go up, uh, I mean, there's the Arboretum, there's the bridge on Alabama Hill, there's even the, like the bluffs overlooking Boulevard Park, there's, um, there, there's places all over Bellingham. There, there's Oyster Dome. And you could drive to Artist Point. You, you can vehicle all the way, right? So there you go. Uh, there, like it's not, about, it's not about some kind of like physical ability only for the elite few. Or it's not about that. It's just about carving out some space to say, God, uh, you have met your people over and over again in this kind of physical environment. God, I want to carve out some space in my life. I want to physically be in a place where I can see, see for a long distance, see the size of this world, be reminded of my size. And God, I just invite you, if you have something to say to me, I'm making a space. I'm, I'm putting myself in your path. And I'm listening. I would invite us to try that this week. God wants us in the mountains. Not in a... God wants us all to be elite rock climbers, but I think God is a God who desires to continue to speak to us. And yes, he can speak at a table at McDonald's, but there might be something about just getting up high in his creation. He says, I have something for you about perspective and size and who you are and how I see you and where I'm taking you. Let's be a community that seeks out his voice together. Does that sound good? Okay, good. Let me pray and we'll continue worshiping. Jesus, Jesus, in your, your, in your time here in the flesh, as you walked this world uh, as a man, you physically went up um, mountains. And I wonder, Jesus, did you think about Moses and Elijah and Eden and the, the feast on the mountain at the end? And Jesus, uh, what was it about you getting away from the noise of this world just to listen for the voice of your Father? Jesus, I... Yeah, you fascinate us endlessly, and we want to be people who follow you. And so I would just simply say, Lord, uh, would, you, would you speak to us? Would you give us ears to hear your voice? And those places that we do need your perspective, your vision, your sense of where you're taking us, the sense of your size, the sense of our size. Jesus, this week, would you, would you speak to us in the ways we need to hear? Help us carve out time and space, and by your Spirit, give us ears to hear your voice. You're so good. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.